today, and then, of course, we'll answer the question next week. So I have this week and next week to preach to you, uh, and so I appreciate this opportunity. But uh, we'll have a bit of a crescendo, and then we'll have a hard stop, and then we'll focus next week on something that's a little more heavy. It doesn't mean that it's condemning or convicting, really, but it's just heavy subject matter, and you probably ought to tell where we're going throughout this semester, what we, or what this, sorry, my semester of school just ended, that's why I got that on my mind. But today, in this sermon, maybe throughout the sermon, you can tell kind of where we're headed even next week, which is uh, not, not, a bad place to, uh, not a bad place to be. I do want to start with a question, though. And this was almost unanimous at Thursday and, uh, and, and this morning. Now, saying that, there'll probably be zero in here, which is, which is okay. But, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and raise my hand, not as one encouraging you to raise yours, but just simply as one admitting and confessing before you that I fall in this category. But how many of us would say that we have had seasons where prayer was maybe difficult for us? I didn't really know what to pray. Okay, it's a lot. I, I just see some hands. Raise them up high. Go ahead. It's, it's okay. All right, now, now keep them high just for a second. Look around. Look around the room. All right, so hopefully you can breathe now and relax that you're not the only person that has had seasons in your life where prayer was difficult. I didn't know what to pray, or I was praying, and it didn't seem like anything was happening, and so then I just kind of stopped, or I couldn't quite figure out prayer. I was pleading with God. That's all of us, just about, in this room. And if you're listening online, there's 5,000 people in the sanctuary today, and there's a lot of hands just went up. Then I ask another question, and, um, and I'll ask that you be even more bold if you fall in this category. And this is the last question, but how many of you would say that you are currently in that, in that season? And maybe right now, I mean, I'm just, I don't really, I'm not really praying right now. I haven't really prayed, I haven't really come before God in, uh, you know, in recent days with anything. Just, I'm just not really, can't quite figure it out, I'm just kind of tired. Again, that's 5,000 hands if you're uh, listening online, that's every hand in the room. Well, here's, here's why. Here's why I want to focus on this today. And I, what I really want to focus on is next week's message. But I feel like without this week's message, next week's, I don't know, it doesn't bear as much weight as, as this week's does um, if it just stands alone. So 1 Thessalonians says to pray continually. Now, just me, how I'm wired, maybe it's just my, my makeup, how just God's designed me. But like I, I, I do pray continually. That's not really a struggle for me. That's not work for me. Like I, I'm a verbal processor, so I constantly talk out loud. Um, I'm, I'm a naturally inquisitive person, so I ask a lot of questions, and I just kind of ask myself questions. If I go for a walk and you see me talking to myself in the neighborhood, that's what I'm doing. I'm most likely praying. I'm thinking through something out loud. So I, and I do that continually. In fact, most mornings when my wife and I are up with our son, and, it's, and the sun's not even out yet, so it's still dark, and we have a cup of coffee, I'll start talking to her about some things that are seemingly always on my heart and my mind, to which she 100% of the time responds, I'm not awake enough yet to, to have this conversation. Happens every single, it'll happen tomorrow morning. Because I just wake up with, hey, what do you think about this? And why, do you th- and why in the world, this is just how I'm just naturally designed. One thing that I do struggle with is sitting at the, the kitchen table for just an hour or two hours to do nothing but pray. I really struggle with that. Like I can't just calm myself down and spend an hour or two hours praying. In fact, I honestly get frustrated with, with long-winded prayers. In fact, if you've ever been to any kind of community gathering that's, that just has a lot of pastors doing things, and the, the first pastor, all he has to do is give an announcement and, and then pray and welcome you here, typically that sermon turns into, or that prayer turns into a seven-point sermon because he can't wrap it up because he's trying to prove a point in his message. And it just, it bothers me. Like, hey, man, just say amen, and let's get this thing going. And it's just long, extended times of prayer. It's just, again, how I'm designed. 
but I don't like it. I'll give you one final example. Um, one of my trips to Malaysia, we would partner with an organization called Redeeming Roses that they minister in the red light districts. They go into bars and clubs and they remove prostitutes from there and they offer them jobs and they give them the opportunity to leave this life of, of the human trafficking and the sex slave industry and you can partner with us and we can give you a job and a safe place to live. It's very dangerous work and I'll, I'll speak more about that I'm sure in the future but the organization is called Redeeming Roses. And I remember one evening we were, we were partnering with them to go into these bars and clubs to do ministry and we spent two hours in prayer and worship which was okay until I found out that we were doing 30 minutes of ministry. And so for me, like I, had a, I had a problem with that. Like Maybe you don't. Maybe we should have doubled it and had four hours of prayer and then 15 minutes of ministry. But for me, I didn't understand why are we spending two hours praying and only 30 minutes doing ministry. Why not pray for 30 minutes and then we can spend two hours doing, you know, doing work, doing the ministry. And so I struggled with that. But the reason, and I shared all that just to say that I don't make long, lengthy prayers. Most of the time when I pray for somebody who's sick, it's not this blunt, but it's usually a heal them or kill them, Lord. That's usually my prayer. Like I don't, It's not that blunt. I learned that from my father, by the way. It's not that blunt, but my prayer is, you know, Lord, either heal them, just outright heal them, or remove them so they can be with you. But I don't want years and years of suffering and the family has to go through pain and difficulty and grief. Lord, either heal them now outright or just remove them and then comfort the family with whatever you decide to do. So that's usually my prayer. So if you ask me to pray for somebody in your family, that's probably going to be the prayer that, uh, that, that you get. But why do we have seasons of, of either not praying at all or kind of struggling? We don't know what to pray. Well, I believe it's because of one of three things. We either don't know the promises of God from the, from the text, from the scripture. We have forgotten the promises of God or we don't believe the promises of God. Because if, I, if God has made promises to me, doesn't it make sense that I would just simply pray back to God what He has already promised to give me and provide for me? Wouldn't I just pray back words that are already true to His character and His nature and who He is? But if I don't know those promises, then I, of course, can't pray these promises back to God. So some of the promises from Scripture, and I'll just go through these quickly. These are just a handful of the promises about God in the Scripture. That God promises that He is for us. He will never leave or forsake us. He will always be with us. He will save us. He will help us, rescue us, redeem us, rejoice over us, sing over us. He will provide for us, love us, forgive us, wash us, declare us innocent. He will not condemn us, not accuse us. He will remain faithful to us, delight in us, deliver us, fight for us, carry us, and sustain us. He will set us free. He will make us a new creation. He will give to us, and He will give us eternal life. These are the promises of Scripture that I hope are just a warm blanket to the soul. There should be a lot of comfort in these promises. As we go into 2 Chronicles 20, and if you you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. I encourage you to to follow along, but I want to kind of recap 17 through 19 to get us to chapter 20. And then chapter 20, there's a couple things that said that's just loaded with significance. And then we'll start to, uh, to let the text press on us just a little bit. But at this time, verses 17, or chapter 17 through 19, at this point in time, King Jehoshaphat is walking with the Lord. He is serving his people well, and he's being blessed by the Lord because he was walking in the ways that his father David had followed. Well, his father was Asa, A-S-A, King Asa. So when it says his father David, that's simply referring to his ancestor David. So David, a couple kings ago, and then you had Asa, then you had Asa's son, 
Jehoshaphat. And the thing about the Israelites and God's chosen people, and King Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah, but with God's chosen people, there's rarely two good kings in a row. If you're very familiar with the Israelites, man, they, they just constantly seem to struggle. They're asking, they get demonized kings. They have kings that are very manipulative and very selfish, not pursuing God. There's idol worship taking place, but not with Jehoshaphat. So when he becomes king, there's two things that he wants to do. He wants to, he wants to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord and seek God only. And he wants a strong military. Well, the reason he wants a strong military is because, as you'll see, there are nations around him that, that at any given time they could, they could overcome Judah because Judah is the smallest of territories, the smallest of tribes, the smallest of God's little clique of people amongst his greater people. So Jehoshaphat did not consult the Baals, which was a, a, almost a, a, a demon god. It was a god that pagans worshipped. It was the, kind of the highest name for a god that, that a pagan would worship. He did not consult the Baals, but he sought to please the Lord. He did not follow the practices of the Israelites, which again, if you're familiar with the Israelites, they have seasons of nailing it, being obedient to God, only to the next day, they screw it up by being completely disobedient to God. And the Israelites are very much so up and down. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord, and he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah, which were like totem poles. So there was worship of pagan gods, and there was idol worship both of which King Jehoshaphat says, we're not going to do that anymore. We're all going to seek God and the one true God. Jehoshaphat allied himself with Ahab, and this is in, in chapters, uh, the end of chapter 17, the beginning of chapters 13, or beginning of chapters 18. Jehoshaphat allies himself with Ahab, king of Israel, by marriage. So Jehoshaphat's son marries Ahab's daughter, and some years later, he goes down to Samaria to visit Ahab, and Ahab asks him, Will you go uh, to war against Ramoth-Gilead or Gilead with me? So also at this time, God had put fear in the kings of, of the armies surrounding Judah. So they weren't, a threat to, they weren't a threat to attack Judah at this time as long as Jehoshaphat was seeking God and God alone. God was blessing him by giving him peace from his enemies. Well, Ahab hears of this. He says, let's maybe we can work a deal. Our children can get married. Here's all this land and this territory. Here's some plunder. Here's some things I can give you. And then when Jehoshaphat accepts that deal, so a godly man, but not perfect, so he aligns himself with somebody who's a little bit manipulative here and couldn't see that. And so now you have Ahab saying, well, I have some people, I have some enemies, and I want to align with you because God is blessing you and giving you peace from your enemies. So why don't you and I align together, and then will you help me, and more importantly, will your God help us in this battle? Okay, so that's, that's what's taking place in 17 through 19 to get us to chapter 20. So after this, starting in verse 1, after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Munites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. So he's going to get everybody together, and we're all going to, to pray together. We're going to fast together. We're going to be unified in what we're doing as we present our cause to the Lord and as we inquire of the Lord. Verse 4, the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. 
O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt, so they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. There's three things that that he says in this prayer, three prayers kind of within this prayer that I want to focus on this morning. If you highlight, underline, draw, or, or if you make notes, these are three good lines that he, that he prays. And I would like for this to be our posture, really always, but especially when we find ourselves in seasons where prayer might be a little bit more difficult today than it was maybe, maybe a week ago. But the first thing he says is, O Lord our God, are you not the God who is in heaven? So he understands who, who God is. He understands the, the Jewish traditions here. He understood the five books of the Bible, which was the Torah. He understood the five books of Scripture, first five. He says, God, are, you know, oh, our God, are you not the God who is in heaven? In other words, is anything too big for you? I know who you are. All-powerful, all-knowing, you're everywhere, you can save. Are you Next, he says, did you not? So are you not? And did you not rescue your people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery? And then you brought them into the promised land, the land overflowing with milk and honey. And you wouldn't even let your, your Israelites, you wouldn't even let them attack these other nations. But look how they're repaying us. So are you not God Almighty? Have you not delivered your people? Then he says the third time, will you not do it again? What if that was our posture in prayer? And so today, it, could, we, it would be similar to, are you not the God who heals? Have you not healed in the past? Will you not heal today? And I'm going to pray that believing that. Are you not the God who saves? Have you not saved people who wanted nothing to do with you? See Saul, Paul, for example, in Acts. I have family that want nothing to do with you. Would you save them? Are you not the God who saves? Have you not saved before? Will you not save them? You see how this works? This is, what, if this is our, what if this is our posture all the time in prayer? Are you not? Did you not? And will you not? And then he, I love how the ends, verse 12, he says, We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. See, often we pray our deepest prayers in life when that which stands before us is bigger than us. So the question becomes now, is there anything standing before you that the weight of this is just crushing to you? Have you ever had that season where, and this is gross, but it's the language the Bible uses, so I think it's safe to use. Have you ever had that season where your snot and your tears are your only food? And the idea of enduring longer than today is crushing to you. How are you, how's your prayer life been? And often we can be crushed by the weight of that because we, we don't know God's promises, so we don't know how to pray back to Him what He's already promised. 
and then we're crushed by the weight of our circumstances. And that which stood before Jehoshaphat was much bigger than him, and his posture was, let's get everybody together, we're going to fast, we're going to pray, and then the prayer is, are you not, did you not, will you not? Verse 13 says, All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Uh, perhaps your text says all of Judah, and then it says with their wives. Uh, same meaning here. I would love to get back to the days where our men were leading the families to the presence of God. Where our men were leading their, their homes, saying, hey, you know what, let's, let's go to church. We're going to go to church today. We're going to go to church. We're going to worship God. Study upon study, research upon research is revealing that on Sundays, a lot of men just kind of shrug their shoulders. And it's the wives, it's the mothers that have to hey, get dressed, we're going to church. Biblically, no, no, it was the men that said, hey, honey, let's go. Let's get the kids ready. We're going to go pursue God today. How different would our culture, our churches be if the men were like the men of Judah that said, hey, let's get our wives and our, and our families, let's get our children, let's go pursue God together. Verse 14, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, and he said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you, do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them, they will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle, take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshipped before the Lord. This battle ends with them going out the next day and just seeing, as far as they could see, bodies upon bodies and blood upon blood, or as far as they could see. What happened was God, all these armies that rose up against Judah, God put them in, in confusion, and so they just began to kill each other. And the armies were so big that when God said to, to Judah, to this nation, hey, go and take the plunder, and sometimes in Scripture God says, do not take anything from your enemies. But on this occasion he said, okay, go and take what you need. And so they did, and the, and the army of Judah, they go out, and it takes them three days to collect all that they wanted. That's how big this army was. They spent three days. You can read it. It's still there in chapter 20. And then chapter 20 ends with Jehoshaphat making another terrible decision to align himself with another king, another person that is not pursuing God the way that he is. So as great as a man, as great as a ruler as Jehoshaphat was, he wasn't perfect. And so here's what sin tells us typically after God has been good to us and then we just blow it the next day. Like, so God's good to us today, but tomorrow we commit that sin that, that just drives us crazy. Sin would tell us, this is how good God is to you, and then this is how you pay him back? This is what sin would tell you. This is, what, this is how the devil attacks the children of God. Look how good God is to you, and then this is what you do in return to him? So God delivers you, Jehoshaphat, from, from these enemies, and then this is how you pay God back? This is how you repay him? By aligning again, making another terrible decision? But you see, the words from grace are, look how good God is to you, knowing what you're going to do tomorrow. You don't even know how you're going to fall next week, what you're going to do or say next week. Look how faithful God is to you, knowing that you're going to imperfectly execute your obedience to Him. 
So which of those do you hold on to more after you commit that sin that tears you up? Man, I've done it this time. God wants nothing to do with me. Or, Lord, I repent. I confess. I'm sorry. Help me to not do that again. But, Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness, even though I'm at times unfaithful to you. So too often it takes troubles, hardships, opposition to bring us to our knees before the Lord. I mean, certainly prosperity can bring us to our knees before the Lord. When was the last time you wept because you had a car to drive? Now, you let your child get sick and you'll, and you'll go to the Lord. You let your marriage be in trouble and you'll start pursuing God. When was the last time you openly wept that you're employed? Or that right now everybody you know and love is alive and doing well. When was the last time you openly wept before God, thanking God for His goodness to you? That's a question for me too. Like I don't think I've ever wept for my car. And I've wept when things have not gone the way I would desire for them to go. And oftentimes when something doesn't go our way, we instantly come to the conclusion that God is not for us because how could God allow this to happen? And that might be the evidence that God is for us. Then how can that work? Again, typically we pray our deepest prayers when that which stands before us is bigger than we are or that crushes us. And it's easy to lose heart when we're in that season because we don't know the promises of God. So we're not praying the promises of God. Speaking on prayer, Matthew 6, I think it's in Luke 11 as well. Jesus speaks on prayer and he says, you, when, you, when you pray, don't make this long, lavish prayer. Just go behind, you know, go in your closet and pray. Go behind closed doors and, and pray. And your father, you know, he'll give you what you ask for. But he also says this, which, which trips a lot of people up. And I've been asked this dozens of times uh, in, in the last seven years. In Matthew 6, 8, Jesus says, do not be like them. Again, referring to hypocrites who love to stand before you and make lavish and long prayers. He says, don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, here's the question that I'm always at, or that I'm, I've been asked a lot. And it's a reasonable question, but if, if the Father knows what we need before we ask Him, then what's the point of prayer? It's a reasonable question, right? If He knows not only what I want, but if He knows what I need, why is He going to make me ask Him for it or beg Him for it? Like, why do I feel like God's just dangling something out here right in front of me and He just won't give it to me? Why does God make me ask of Him and pursue Him? When He knows what I need, why won't He just provide that for me? And He can. He certainly could, but would, if God gave me everything that I asked for and needed, would I know Him on any deeper level or would I just walk around receiving blessing upon blessing and the result of that never being worship? And see, prayer is not even about us merely getting answers or getting what we desire from God. It's about oneness and, and complete communion with the Father. So do my prayers align with God? Is my heart aligned with the heart and thoughts of God when I pray? Or am I praying for something that God desires for me not to have and I can't, and I'm still praying for it and God's over here. I don't, I, this is not good for you. And I'm still over here. But no, but I want it. I need it. This is, this is mine. I think this is a good thing. And here could be God. This is going to end in disaster if I give this to you. That's a little bit more next week. As we close here, perhaps one may say, or perhaps you may say, you know, Tyler, I, I love long extended times of prayer. Like I'm not, I'm not like you. I'm not wired like you. I don't, I don't go shoot basketball and pray while I'm doing that. I love just to sit quietly and present my request before the Lord and journal and have a cup of coffee and study and I love that quiet time with the Lord. And I can do that for hours. Like maybe that's you and that's a good thing. 
maybe, maybe you would also say, or maybe one would also say, and when I pray, I pray for complete oneness. I pray, I pray for communion. I don't just want some answers from God. I'm praying earnestly. I'm pursuing Him. And then, by the way, doesn't Jesus say, ask anything in my name and I'll give it to you? Doesn't Jesus say that several times? Ask anything in my name and it's yours. Doesn't the Bible say if you pray believing you've already received it, it will be yours? Doesn't also the Bible say you have not because you ask not? So what do we do when someone says, I'm praying in the name of Jesus. I'm praying for a second job so I can make ends meet. And I pray in Jesus' name and then I lost my first job. I'm praying for my marriage and then my spouse left me. I was praying for my, my, my wife to, to, to have a safe delivery, and the baby died at 17 weeks. By the way, that happened last week. My dad called me. He was a member of his church. They lost their baby at 17 weeks. Still had to go through labor and all that, 17 weeks shy of giving birth. So what happens when you're praying in Jesus' name, and then that which you're desiring doesn't happen? What do we do then? Because again, doesn't the Bible say, ask anything in my name and I'll give it to you? And that's a heavy topic, and that'll be our topic for next week. So I hope you come back. If you can't come back, get with me after the service and I'll give you the answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who loves us. Are you not the God who is in heaven? Have you not drawn near to your people in the past? God, will you not draw near to us once more? God, thank you for being a God who is faithful to us even when we imperfectly execute our obedience to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.